Jesus said, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or their tribute? Do they take it from children? From their children? Or do they take it from other people? And when Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. Then the children are free. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know what? The church, my friends, is weird. It is very, very weird. It is weird for a lot of reasons, one of which being that all of you are in it, and me. You know, the church is weird, according to the world, because we worship a crucified God. We boldly proclaim that death has been defeated in the person of Jesus Christ. Add to that the fact that we dump water on babies, telling them they've been baptized into the death of Jesus. And every month, and for now, every week, we proudly eat Jesus' body and we drink his blood. Friends, I don't know if things could get much stranger. Last week was Easter, which of course is probably the strangest Sunday of the year. We looked around the sanctuary and we saw people we've never seen before. We remembered the dark shadow of the cross from Good Friday and we triumphantly sang... Christ is alive, let Christians sing. And yet here we are, one week later, on the other side of the resurrection story, we, like the early disciples before us, were experiencing this whiplash of discovering that a strange new world has been changed for good in Jesus. The resurrection shatters all of our previous expectations, all of our assumptions. It is the lens by which We must read the whole Bible. As I said last week in my Easter sermon, if the Easter story were not included in the Holy Scriptures, then we would have thrown out our Bibles a long time ago. It is the story. But now, a week later, we jump back in and we go back in time. We go back into the ministry of Jesus long before the cross or the empty tomb. We have pressed the rewind button to re-enter the realm of the bizarre. This act of worship, this time where we read scripture and I stand here and I preach, it's often nothing more than entering into the strange new world of the Bible together and hoping that we can find our way out together. Or to put it another way, if you thought Jesus rising from the dead was crazy, then check this out. A bunch of tax collectors show up to Peter as soon as he and the disciples reach Capernaum and they say, hey, does your guy pay the temple tax or not? Peter says, yeah, of course he pays his taxes. But then when he goes back to the house where Jesus was staying, Jesus, before he even hears what happened, says to Peter, hey, what do you think, Pete? Who do the wealthy and the powerful tax? Do they take money from their own children or do they take money from other people? Peter says, well, they take their money from other people, of course. And Jesus said, okay, well, then the children are free to do whatever they please. But lest we scandalize these temple tax collectors, Pete, why don't, you're a good fisherman, why don't you head down to the sea? Bring your rod and reel, cast a line into the water. The first fish you catch, look in its mouth, and there you will find all the money we need to pay our taxes. What? Have you all ever heard a sermon on this story before? I, I have never heard, I've never preached, this is crazy stuff. I mean, did you all know that two weeks ago when you were paying your taxes, all you had to do was go down to the Occoquan and catch a fish? All you had to do was open its mouth and dump it, and then you go bring that to the IRS? You are scot-free, baby. I should have told you this a month ago. I'm sorry. I, forgive me. 
forgiveness. What? This is crazy. Hey, we don't want to scandalize anybody. Hey, go catch a fish. It's got all the money we need inside of it. It's no wonder the disciples are a bunch of bumbling fools. How can we blame them when Jesus tells them to do stuff like this? All your taxes are inside of a fish's mouth. Over and over in the Gospels, the disciples struggle to make sense of what they see and they hear from Jesus. Sure, they witness miracles and they experience profound truths, but they are also bombarded with some strange new ideas that come straight from the lips and straight from the actions of their Lord Jesus Christ. He was a weird guy. And the weirdness comes to its fullness when Jesus realizes, or perhaps he's known the whole time, that the kingdom of God, whatever it will be, is inextricably tied up with his own exodus, his own death, and his own resurrection. So the parables, they only make sense. They don't really even make sense, but if they make any sense, they only make sense on the other side of the resurrection, where we are now. I've made the case before that when we read the parables, we want to make them be about us, but they're only about Jesus, only secondarily about us. That's why Jesus orders his disciples again and again to not tell anyone what they have seen or heard until he has been raised from the dead. Upon first glance, the money in the mouth of the fish, it might not even sound like a parable. Because when we hear the word parable, we are quick to jump to the good Samaritan or the prodigal son. We conjure up in our minds the stories that Jesus told. But this is a parable. It's just one that Jesus lives out. What makes it parabolic is that it points to something greater than its parts, and it leaves us with more questions than answers. The temple tax collectors are out to find the temple tax. It's called the, the die drachma. It was a two drachma tax, an annual tax expected of all Jews, and it amounted to about two days' worth of pay. But they weren't simply looking to collect on what was due to them. They want to know what kind of person this Jesus is. Hey, hey, does your guy pay his taxes? <coughs> It's just another version of, hey, does your guy follow the law? And Peter, ever eager to jump in and th speaking without thinking about what he's about to say? Oh, yeah, of course. He definitely pays his taxes, just like I pay all of my taxes. And then he goes home. And Jesus, who is not aware at all that this conversation has taken place, asks Peter a question upon his arrival in the door. Hey, Pete, who do the wealthy take their taxes from? Do they expect their own children to pay them taxes, or do they go find other people to pay the taxes? Peter says, no, they don't tax their own children. They go ask other people. And that was good enough for Jesus, who then says, okay, then the children are free. Before we even get to the miraculous and the monetized fish, Jesus is establishing something remarkably new through the spoken truth of this parabolic encounter. Jesus and his followers, in whatever this new kingdom will be, are under no obligations to the old order, represented by those in power. The former things are passing away, and Jesus is doing a new thing. The children are free from taxes. They don't have to do anything. Which, to some of our ears, starts to sound a little disconcerting. Because some of us are immediately perking up in our pews because we're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus says we don't have to pay our taxes? Why didn't somebody tell me this before? Whereas some of us are starting to sink down a little bit because we're thinking, uh-oh, what happens if we all stop paying our taxes? We're going to be in big trouble. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples, they don't have to do anything because they are God's children. And only God has the right to tax God's creatures. This wasn't public taxes. This isn't the IRS coming to collect. 
This isn't money that was used for public school education or for infrastructure repairs or for national defense. This was for the temple. This was for the religious establishment. The very same temple and the very same people that Jesus later says, I came to destroy. Then he moves on. He moves to the action of the parable, the part that, if we're honest, leaves us even more trouble than with the questions about our taxes. He says, hey, you know what, Pete, you're a good fisherman. We don't want to scandalize these people. Why don't you go fishing, look in the mouth of the first fish you catch, and there will be enough money for both of us. It says that there will be a coin. Interestingly, in Greek, it says the coin is a stator, which is exactly worth four drachmas. It's a perfect amount to cover both Peter and Jesus's expected taxes. So then, of course, we want to know, how do these temple tax collectors react when they hear that they got the money from the coin of a fish's mouth? But you know what? The Bible doesn't tell us what happens. So we think, okay, well, how does Peter respond to actually going out to the sea and casting his line and catching a fish with a coin inside of his mouth? But the Bible doesn't tell us that either. All we get is the parable. All we get are Jesus' words and Jesus' actions. Jesus knows that his own death will be at the heart of this new order called the kingdom of God. And in this strange and quixotic moment, he knows how free he and his disciples are from the old religious, the old political, the old messianic expectations, and he decides to make a joke about all of them. For the living Lord, this is nothing new. He was known for breaking the rules, for eating with sinners, for questioning the authorities. But now in this story, Jesus lives and speaks into the truth of his location, being outside all the programs created by those with power to maintain their power. He is free among the dead. He is bound to the last and to the least and to the lost. The coin in the fish's mouth is a great practical joke of God's own creation against the powers and the principalities. It's another way of saying, hey, you think all this religious stuff is going to save you? You think your morality and your ethics and your economics are enough? Even the fish in the sea have a better chance than you and me. The children are free. The children are free. Free from what? The children are free from the religious forms of oppression and expectation. Whatever religion was trying to do during the time of Jesus, and sadly, many forms of religion today, cannot be accomplished by our own religious acts, but can be and are only accomplished in the mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection. The children are free. The parable in the, of the coin in the fish's mouth is far greater than any episode by the sea or any treatment about the levying of taxes. It is a profound declaration of freedom. It's about freedom. But therein lies another problem for us. Because when we hear the word freedom, it, we bring all of our own definitions to that word. We hear the word freedom and we see red, white, and blue. We talk about freedom in terms of getting to do and say and believe whatever we want without anybody telling us otherwise. But Jesus brings a very different kind of freedom. It's not the freedom of religion. It's the freedom from religion. It's the freedom from religion. Because religion, in the many ways it manifests itself, it only often has one thing to say. People like you and me need to do something in order to get God to do something in return. We need only be good enough or faithful enough or merciful enough until we can tip the scales back in our favor. But that kind of religious observance, which is most religious observance, it traps us in a game that we will always and forever lose. 
We cannot win that game. It is bad news. It's the worst news. Jesus says, I've come to bring you good news. I've come not to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Again and again and again, Jesus and the, and, the, and, the, and the disciples in the Gospels, they stand against whatever the established religious order was doing and trying to do. The devil tries to tempt him and give him power over the temple, and Jesus says, no. Jesus rebukes the hard and the fast rules of not eating with sinners, of not helping people on the Sabbath. After he enters Jerusalem with the cross ever present on the horizon, he goes straight into the temple and he flips over the tables of all the moneylenders. And even in his death, while he is hanging on the cross, the veil of the temple is torn into two pieces. The old has fallen away and something new has arrived in its place. Jesus says he doesn't want to scandalize those trapped in the law. He doesn't want to scandalize those who are obsessed with religious observance. But his cross, his empty tomb, they are the most scandalous things in the world. They are scandalous because we don't have to do anything for it. We are no longer responsible for our own salvation. We do not have to be the arbiters of our own deliverance. We are free. Truly and deeply free. Jesus has erased the record that stood against us and he chose to nail it to the cross instead. Jesus has taken the gone fishing sign and hung it over the doorpost of ridiculous religious requirements that we've used against one another and against ourselves. Jesus has not come with bad news. He has only come with good news. And that good news is this. You and me, we are free. We are free. Amen. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. <laughs> Amen. At our 8.30 service this morning, after I finished the sermon, I told a story about this televangelist. His name is Jesse Duplantis. He's the one that is, I think, finally just got his $50 million for his private jet. The same one I've been asking for from you. <laughs> We've had not a single cent contributed to my private jet fund. I want to let you all know how much you are sinners, and I'm waiting for God to turn you around. I, I told this story, and I talked about the religious requirements he puts upon his people. If you want uh, to get a little bit of salvation, you have to give him $50 and send you this picture with an outline of his hand. And he can place your hand and the outline of his hand. And he says he's praying for you. For another $100, he'll send you these tablets that you can put through water and you drink it. It's the Holy Spirit coming. It's just craziness. It is religion. Religion in its worst possible forms. I told this story. One of our church members came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I went to a church one time when they were doing the offering. The pastor stood up and said, okay, if you're an elder in the church, I feel God telling me that you're going to give $50. And we're going to be watching to make sure all the elders of the church put $50 in the offering plate. And they waited until the elders of the church put $50. And then, oh, the rest of you peons, I feel God telling me you're going to put $25 in the offering plate. And they waited until everybody put $25 in the offering plate. You know what that's called? That's called religion. All of the bad parts of religion. All of it. I remember sitting in a church service one Sunday, just waiting, doing the whole thing, having a good time, and they sent out the offering plates, and everybody got there, and they passed, and they came back up, and the pastor said, I feel like there's not enough money in here, so I'm going to send the ushers out to collect one more time. Friends, if I did that, ain't none of you coming back next week. I promise you. 
But all of that is part of religion. The bad and horrible parts of religion that tell you you will never have enough. You will never do enough. And you must always do more and more and more and more be enough. The cross says otherwise. The cross says you will never be able to do enough because Jesus is doing it for you. That's why later in the service, when I pass out the offering plates, it's going to be a weird thing. Because it's not a tax. Oh, that it would be a tax. You know how much money it would be <laughs> if it was a tax that all you had to pay, all this and that. But thanks to God, it's not. It is free. You can put money in. You don't have to put money in. You know what? If you need money, you can take money out. And then we won't have church about a month later. But that's okay. <laughs> you know why it's okay? Because at least we be faithful. At least we be faithful. But before we get there, we have to have the most free thing in the world. This meal. Because this does not come at a cost. I told the story at the 830 service, too. I went to a church one time. They thought that putting the offering plates up made people feel too uncomfortable. So they decided they were going to change it up. They had a stool right here at the front of the center aisle. And they would put the offering plate on it when communion was being served. So you had to walk around this plate if you were going to get Jesus' body and blood. I remember pulling the dollar out of my pocket and I said, gosh, this feels a lot more like the safe way than it does getting my Lord. felt like I had to pay for it. That is the furthest thing from what Jesus would want. Us feeling like we have to do something to earn this. That's why it's called grace. This is free. It's not cheap. It's not even expensive. It's totally and completely free. The only free thing there is. The only free thing.